Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm super excited today to greet our 100th guest, Werner Vogels, CTO and VP of Amazon.com. We have a tradition here at SeedCamp and on this podcast of talking a little bit about the background behind the man. And in this case, Werner, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And maybe we can start off with you sharing what you did as the first thing right after college, undergrad, what you studied. Um, well, thank you. First of all, Carlos, thank you very much for, for having me. It's really an honor to be on the 100th uh, podcast. Unfortunately, you know, my, my background was not a traditional one in that um, I didn't really go study computer science until I was 28. I grew up in the 70s and uh, in the Netherlands where I grew up, there was still mandatory military service. So when I left high school, um, I basically had, I traveled around the world a bit, which you did in the 70s with your backpack, and I went into military service for two years. And when I when I came out of that, I uh, I decided I wanted to uh, to make an impact in, in, in healthcare. And so I, I went to work as a, a an in-service education at a hospital uh, to become a radiology uh, assistant, you know, taking x-rays and things like that. Um, I really got bitten by the healthcare bug there and uh, eventually went on to uh, as a radiotherapy um, assistant, meaning, you know, radiating cancer patients. But, but in the end, you know, after not doing that for a number of years, I, I found that, that, you know, dealing the whole time with people that are dying and, and wasn't really healthy for me. I couldn't really deal with that very well at an emotional level. And I decided that I needed to make a radical change in my life. I was 27, 28. And um, I decided to go back to school. And so I went back to, uh, to university and uh, started uh, computer science. And this is uh, mid-80s, end of the 80s. You know, computer science wasn't as big in the, those days, but I felt uh, like an area with a lot of premise and something where I didn't have to deal with humans all the time. So, you know, I did uh, four years of pure computer science. Uh, one of the advantages of uh, growing up in, in Europe, or at least in the Netherlands, is that your uh, your university years aren't bothered by more general education, but purely focused on, uh, on that one particular topic, computer science in this case. It turned out I had a gift for it. And I definitely had a gift for pushing the edge and looking for new things. And... I, I really, when I when I finished my undergrad, had a had a good idea that I wanted to do more researchy kind of things than um, than sort of go into industry and uh, start writing COBOL. So, what are the key so, areas of, of of research that you focused on when you started that that, that well, time of your mostly, life? Mostly, these were the early days of distributed systems. Yeah, where really thinking about how could you use multiple machines to actually uh, provide higher quality uh, service. Yeah, and whether that is availability, better scale, you know, better better performance. Uh, in in essence, and that is something that sort of goes as a sort of a red line through through the years to come after that in terms of research. We we've been thinking a lot, I think, in those days about how to use is parallel computing purely in the context of high-performance computing, and that was a pretty well-established area already in, in those days. But we never had applied it to, let's say, normal applications. Yeah, In, in essence, those days, all applications that were built were just 
single server or single machine applications. And so I really had an had an inkling that 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 was sort of the uh, where things were to come. And and so things that were were in in play at that time, for example, at CMU, um, the Andrew project was was already getting into that particular area with the Andrew file system came out of that one, and a project at Tina at um, at MIT. Uh, so we're already the earliest sort of glimpses of how distributed systems would play a, a very important role in the future. And at what point did you then decide that you want to try to tackle some of these problems as an entrepreneur? You know, I, I know that you you branched out while you were at Cornell into reliable network solutions, but how did that happen? Yeah. No, so first of all, I did my undergrad in the Netherlands. And so when I was finished there, I, I didn't really feel like, uh, even though I had a knack for research, I didn't really want to go into spend, let's say, seven years in a, locked up in a university because I wanted to... Have my wanted to have impact at the same time, so I actually left the Netherlands and went to work in in Portugal at a research institute called INESC. And uh, at INESC, they focused the, the group I, I worked on was focusing on sort of distributed systems, but applying it to factory floor automation. So how can you automate very large factories um, by using distributed systems? And so. I've done that work there for two to three years and had published about it and then got invited actually by Cornell to spend a year at Cornell uh, because Cornell was one of the the hotbeds of distributed systems. And uh, Ken Berman and Robert van Vanessa invited me to to join their group for years of visiting research. Although, you know, we got along very well and I stayed, eventually stayed there for 10 years instead of just one, one year. And so from that point, is where the company that was called Reliable Network Solutions, is that where it was born? No, no, no. I joined, I joined Amazon. I joined, um, is it? I joined Cornell in 1994. Mm-hmm. And so on the side, I helped uh, uh, Ken Berman with a company that he had founded called ISIS. Mm-hmm. That was one of the distributed systems toolkits that he had built and that he went through, pro- through productizing it. And eventually he sold that company to Stratus, uh, which was a, a company focused initially on hardware fault tolerance, but really wanted to go into the world of software fault tolerance. And it wasn't until, let's say, 1999, sort of at the end of of the 90s, when technology that we had developed at Cornell around uh, building distributed systems using epidemic technologies really started to address the level, the sort of types of scale that, that we thought was going to sort of power the internet scale companies. And so we decided to take some of the technologies that we had and then again do a, a technology transfer uh, into this company called Reliable Network Solutions, which we founded, yeah. uh, the three of us. So Ken Berman, Robert Vanessa, and I in 1999 to actually sort of productize and build, build these technologies to build really to a sort of middleware to help build very scalable systems. So maybe walk us through that first journey as an entrepreneur that you had. You know, is there any stories or anything kind of lessons learned from that experience that you carry to this day? Yeah, as an academic, I had no clue what I was doing. Let me put it like that. You know, I had no idea uh, about uh, product development. I had no idea. I had limited ideas about human resources. I had no idea about, you know, how to do accounting 
at a professional level for a company. So there's all these things which you think that you can do when you start a company that actually starts up taking enormous amounts of time beyond just doing product development by itself. And so I think there were biggest lessons for me to learn actually wasn't necessarily around technology, but they were around all the other pieces that you need to do when you're a founder in a company. How to how to hire the right people, you know, how to make sure that you don't compromise there, even though you have a, a need to go really fast. How to how to sell. Definitely technologies in those days, open source and things like that weren't really big players. So discovery of new software packages and things like that wasn't as as easy as that it is to to today. And as such, you had to build a sales force to actually uh, sell your product. So all these things that sit around the company next to just technology, even though you're a technology company, I think I found were the hardest things to do. And so I think also it's also the place where we made probably most of the mistakes, you know, hiring the wrong people, putting putting people in the in you know, not understanding exactly how to build a, a sales pipeline, not how to scale a sales pipeline like like that. All these things I think were probably the hardest of of all of those. You know, I can imagine that that was um, a huge part of the growth curve to eventually become becoming a CTO. Uh, walk us through that first transition from leaving your company as a as a founder to then joining Amazon in two thousand and four. Well, actually, the the company that company we ran that in parallel while I was still working as a scientist at at uh, Cornell. The, uh, the 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 company came um, didn't have enough revenue by itself. But it wasn't a problem. We only had one round in investment and we were looking at the second round and that was actually going pretty well, except for that all of our investors were from New York. Uh, 9-11 happened. And that was also the moment when we almost ran out of money and we were supposed to close our B round. And so none of our investors uh, from New York knew after 9-11 how much money they had left, what the future was going to look like, and as such they pulled out. And that was way too late for us to start finding new investments anywhere else in the, in the country. Now, that makes it seem like, you know, there was sort of this external influence that made this company go bust. But in reality, we should have had a healthy pipeline of customers uh, and revenue that should have so supported us. And if that was the case, then it wouldn't have been so hard to find new investments. But, you know, there's a number of circumstances there, I think, that sort of drove that company to its um, to, to its end. Which I think, if you think of all the hardest things that I've done, I think wrapping up that company was probably one of the hardest things I've done in my life. You know, whether it's laying off people, closing the company, I did all the bankruptcy proceedings and things like that. That was those were not fun, fun times, uh, and it impacted many people's lives. So I think that's sort of, I still see that as one of the harder things I've done. So I went back to academia, or full time, and then it wasn't until 2004. And, and, you know, the technologies that we developed at Cornell were really cool and the ideas were great and really forward-looking and scale. And at one moment, um, Amazon invited me to come and give a talk at Amazon. And actually, I was thinking, really? Do we need to go to Amazon? I mean, it's a web shop. What can it be? You know, a web server and a database. And I uh, came to Amazon to give uh, this talk about, you know, highly scalable epidemic protocols. And one glimpse in the kitchen of Amazon, and I realized that 
you know, what we were doing at, at in academia was just child's play compared to what happened at the scale at uh, at Amazon. And and that there wasn't wasn't just a web server and a database, but that probably anything that you would find in a distributed systems textbook from supply chain uh, um, optimization to high volume transaction processing to um, high performance uh, UIs, anything that you could find in a, in a textbook are were pushed to the max at, at Amazon. And so I was really, really blown away by, by that. And and later on, when, when Amazon came back to me and said, hey, we would like you, uh, we really like the interaction with you, we'd like you to come and work for us. I didn't have to think that long. Curious thing, of course, is that in essence, Amazon is my first real job. And uh, it's been a great ride since. But, you know, walk us through a little bit of what that early entry into Amazon was like. I mean, how many people were there at the time? You know, was there... Because you did you enter as a director of systems research? Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like that that time, two thousand four? How many employees? I think I think that title was sort of was just a title. You know, I think the things that uh, we were looking for at Amazon. Amazon was really pretty good at scaling. You know, because they they really growing uh, tremendously in a number of phases. You know that come through this massive monolithic phase where they go really fast, understand the problems with that. They moved, they were pioneers in developing this sort of service-oriented architecture where they could scale with. And so so Amazon engineers were really, let's say, scalability gurus. But they were they were that from a um, from a practical point of view. You know, they they'd learned their lessons. And so I think what what Amazon intended with bringing me on board was bringing a level of rigor to to the scalability thinking such that we would be for the next sort of two, three, four orders of magnitude of growth, which were likely to happen, that we would be on good footing from a fundamental point of view, not just from a practical lessons learned point of view. And so we we did a lot of work. In the early days, around you know building perform building a sort of rigor around performance, around availability, about efficiency, you know all these kind of things, introducing a, a more rigor to the system uh, and to our overall development process in in that sense. But how did you uh, how did you manage yeah. the, the the process of integrating to a company that already had engineers and potentially those engineers already had an opinion about things? You know, it's very hard, obviously, for somebody to come in and say, "Look, I I have this vision and it's going to involve these great changes." To some of which might be completely opposite to what things were. How did you yeah. coalesce that group of of, of um, engineers to do this new vision? Well, you know, I may have been a bit pig-headed when I entered. You know, when I when I when I when I came to Amazon, you know, you come out of the world like academia, and most academics think the world of themselves uh, and of the way that they've been thinking. And sort of this sort of chip on your shoulder is something that you carry along when you when 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 you enter the production world. I, I pretty quickly had to drop that chip realizing that um, many of the things that we have been doing in academia were 
we're very self-centered. You know, it's all around you. It's your algorithms. It's your group. It's your students. It's your uh, and and everything is very individualized. It's your papers. It's your tenure. However, in production, you can't do anything without teamwork. Yeah, there may be one person that may have great ideas, but in the end, it's something that you still have to all work together on. And I think uh, my realization and, and becoming more still pretty outspoken, but humble about that this is something that we need to work together on. And so much of this is all around consensus building, about team building, around um, you know making sure that that people understand the right direction. Now, within Amazon, many of these things are very easy because we have this sort of overarching goal, which is uh, customer centricity. Yeah, and doing anything that benefits the customer gets sort of priority above everything else. Um, so, working on, for example, eliminating all single points of failure in the company. You know, purely benefits the customer because they could really, you know, we improve the quality of the experience for the customer. Working on performance, you know, really understanding uh, performance at the 99.9 percentile, for for example, is something that really benefits the customer. So building this whole culture around it was something that you know um, engineers really enjoyed getting into because it would benefit. Uh, the overall experience that we would be delivering to, to to our customers. And so given that, you know, we have a very strong hiring bar, hiring culture at Amazon with getting engineers and managers and other, uh, and other players that are really have a, have really customer centricity at, at the center of their being makes it easy. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, we're pretty practical as well. There's a bias for action at Amazon, meaning that you can only talk for so long, but you do have to deliver it sometimes. You have to go build things. And so it, it wasn't that hard for me to integrate into that environment. Uh, uh, the moment I had dropped my, let's say, had, uh, that I had fallen off my, um, or let myself get off this high academic horse and just really understood how to work together to actually get the things done that we needed to do. And so a, a year later after joining, that's when you officially became CTO and started sort of really kind of the wave of innovation, I guess, that's under your tenure at Amazon. What have been the key areas that you would say are you're most proud of in, in since, since that moment? Oh, I, I think still, uh, again, I want to come back to this point earlier that there's nothing that you do at, 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 in, at a company like Amazon, that isn't teamwork. Yeah, and I think something, many of the things that I'm, I'm always amazed by at Amazon is is um, that all this customer centricity is not a is not a marketing trick. It's really living and breathing through everything that we do. And so, I think there's many things that had happened at Amazon that is since I joined that were amazing. If you look at, um, you know, the, the application of robotics in the fulfillment centers, the use of machine learning throughout the company, you know, the Kindles had that have brought a complete revolutionary re revolution to how books are being read. You know, a real platform thinking within the company, also thinking about what are the kind of technologies that we've developed that if, if we would open them up for other people to use, 
what would be what kind of impact could we have? And of course, AWS is one that, that everybody knows about right now. But for example, we've opened up our fulfillment centers for everybody else to, to use. So you can put your goods in our warehouses. You don't need to sell on Amazon, but you know we'll, we'll ship those goods for, for, for you. So how to build systems that you know you you can open, you can have your one of your core competencies, which is you know we really know how to ship and how to handle returns and how to do customer service around that really well. How do you turn that into a product that other companies can build upon? As, 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 so as, how as do you well? manage? How do you manage so, those? What seems to be like three different hot potatoes. You know, one hot potato being hiring the right people. Another one is setting the vision of what the company as a whole should be going for. And maybe three is somewhat playing this middle role of uh, setting quality standards and individual product ideas and validating them and approving them for the people that you've hired to sort of do that and, and sort of setting the milestones for those individual groups. How do you manage to, to balance those well, three? We have, a, we have a different approach there okay. uh, at Amazon. There is no top-down control over, over this. We hire people that are really independent thinkers throughout the company. And that means that most teams are really decentralized. They set their own roadmap. Uh, and there's a roadmap review. You know, that's, that's been, there, there is some level of control. But in essence, you, you, if you hire the absolute best people, you cannot tell them what to do. They, they, they know what they should be doing. And, so, and they're not slackers. And as such, you know, quality control is natural within that particular world. And so I think already early on in the develop, in the hiring process, you just ensure that you really, really hire the absolute best people that fit your culture. And culture in our case is really being independent, being independent thinkers, make up your own roadmap and uh, and deliver on, 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 on that. Um, you know, uh, uh, for example, the recommendation engine for shoes is a radical different recommendation engine than that one for books. So the team that's responsible for that really lays out their roadmap. What are they going to do for the coming year? What are they going to, what are the improvements that they're going to make for the coming year? And then live by that and improve them and continuously improve the quality that they're delivering, delivering to their customers. So there is limited top-down control. At, you know, we, we, we strongly believe that these strong hierarchies are inhibitors for innovation. Yeah, because if there's strong hierarchies, you get sort of this social coherence where, this, where the hierarchy and the social structure becomes more important than telling each other the truth. You know, if you're a small, small startup, a young startup, everybody knows each other, everybody knows what each other is working on, and everybody tells each other the, the truth. But by the time you grow bigger and bigger, sort of the organization itself becomes more important than telling each other the truth. And so we've worked really hard at Amazon to make sure that those teams stay really small and that and as such teams continue to run this sort of truth uh, uh, culture uh, such that, you know, people keep staying on their toes instead of uh, having to worry about the impact on the hierarchy. But how does that... It also means that it also means that they can move fast. Yeah, they don't have to ask for approval for everything that needs to happen. So yeah, and and that's it, it gives us a chaos, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, but it's a controlled chaos, 
And there's downsides to the process, to, to that overall uh, structure, but it allows us to really, first of all, move, continue to move fast because you don't have sort of all these, these obstacles in, in your way. And it allows teams to have control of their own destiny. But I mean, one of the things that uh, one of our founders, Gary Shuttler, asks with relations to that is how do you apply that philosophy to hundreds of teams? In, in his words, does it become pizza teams of pizza team representatives? How are network effects managed with hundreds of contracts being published with hundreds of services behind them? Have tools been developed to track what's available to reduce duplication? And is there a degrading SLA capability when it's based on an SLA on top of an SLA on top of an SLA? The two different things here. Right? On one hand, is there, there's the technology side, which you would assume is services consuming other services and things like, like that. With, with strong decentralization, there's a number of disadvantages to that. I mean, you're, you're able to move fast, you're in charge of your own destiny, and if you've built the right uh, technology infrastructure around it, it becomes a really easy to develop new services or new products and, and bring them into production. Things that become harder is, is uh, for example, if something happens in team number five over here, there's, let's say, the need for a new type of Java container. And then it's pretty sure you can imagine that there is team 795 that also has that similar need. And so within Amazon, we have decided that this, this duplication, which is then going to happen, is something that you allow. Yeah, I mean, it is something that for the sake of, of uh, uh, speed of execution, Duplication is something that you should take for granted. However, you have to know the kind of technical depth that you are creating there, and eventually you will need to clean it up. The same, another downside of this sort of massive decentralization is that uh, coordination between teams becomes harder. And so, for example, you know, if two or three teams need to coordinate on something that was not something that is for especially given that these are small teams, not something often that they had budgeted for. And so what you do is you may create another team, yeah, a temporary team uh, with some uh, maybe some, some technical program managers in it or some other engineers that help guide that particular process of coordination for that particular period of time. Some of these may be small, you know, maybe impacting two or three times, but uh, teams. But for example, if you need to make some changes that impact every other process in the order pipeline, that is a substantial impact. Yeah, uh, on on many different teams, and as such, you create separate teams that also help guide that process. And some things impact every team in the company. Yeah, uh, I remember when we had to move from um, REL five, Red Hat Enterprise Edition five, to REL six because you know, Red Hat was putting support for Well5. That was not just this op operating system upgrade. Actually, applications had to be rebuilt, libraries were different, and every team throughout the company was going to have to go through this particular process. So you, you create a, a strong technical team that is going to guide the first few teams for this particular process, take all the learnings from that, and then bring those learnings to other teams so that you can then scale things up and do more of these upgrades in, in par parallel. Those are some of the downsides of sort of, you know, having this decentralization, but you have to be aware of them. 
And so you have to be aware that you have to work on coordination and that you have to work on communication, uh, especially when it comes to, let's say, the roles of your more senior engineers. Yeah, senior engineers, what we call principal engineers within the company, often spend multiple teams. And so, and they often confer together about sort of things that are happening within the company, other, other approaches that have been taken by other teams. And at that level, there's a, there's, there's a very important part of their job description is sort of knowledge sharing between teams and with other principal engineers to make sure that, that, you know, best practices that arise naturally, um, also get, um, uh, get applied in other parts of the company. How does that bubble up into a commercial offering, though? So, for example, Stuart Logan, one of our founders, was wondering, you know, how you realized that AWS should be something you should sell that originally might have been created for internal use across different departments. And was there a concern that was so different to the core of what Amazon did, you know, because it was something that wasn't part of it that, you know, how do you think about launching a commercial proposition around that? Well, well, first, first and foremost, uh, it was not that different from what we already did. Yeah, I mean, many people may see us on the I've seen us as I did when I when I wasn't working for Amazon in the early days. Seen Amazon as a retailer, uh, it's not. Amazon is a technology company that just happens to do retail, and and there's a significant difference there. You know, when Jeff started Amazon, he wasn't looking to start a bookstore. You know, he was fascinated by the internet and what you could do on the internet. And he just picked the bookstore as one of the things that you books as one of the things that you could do at scale in the internet in a in an online operation that you would never be able to do in physical real 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 life. You know, a really good bookstore has forty thousand titles in stock. Yet uh, there's millions and millions and billions of books out there. So the idea that you could build a, a bookstore on the internet that would have all the world's books in it was um, was something that, that seemed achievable. But to, to achieve that, it's all technology, you know, and everything that Amazon has done since the early days, whether it's at scale and whether it's whether it's the recommendation engines, whether it's how to build a self-service system. Remember, there was no self-service before Amazon did this. There were no review systems before Amazon did this. There were no recommendation systems before Amazon built them. And so all of those are technology uh, operations. So Amazon is a technology company that has business integrated into the technology. So for us, thinking about how to apply technology to other solutions, for example, how to build you know, a self-service uh, fulfillment by Amazon operation was not that strange because we could see how this could benefit other companies. Now, looking at our technology stack ourselves, what we done in so there's a number of drivers there, but one, one of the big drivers was that in the early 2000, I think 2001, 2002, Amazon had opened up the catalog for others to use. Basically, you put an API in the catalog and the shopping cart, and I think also search. I'm not really sure exactly which pieces there were, but and what we saw was that lots of new companies were starting to build on top of that. Yeah, there were comparison shopping companies that suddenly uh, came came up and, and new UIs towards uh, the Amazon catalog. And all were actually pretty exciting. I mean, we'd opened up that the uh, we'd opened up that API purely to see what kind of innovation would, would, would happen. And we were, were pretty surprised by, by that. 
uh, really cool things happening. However, what also happened that as soon as one of those companies was becoming successful, they all started to stutter in the execution. And they had to start getting investment because now they had to scale, they had to start buying hardware. And suddenly from a from a from being a company with a cool new idea about how to do comparison shopping, they turned into an IT shop. Because suddenly it became very hard for them because now they had to hire no, no more product people. They had to hire IT managers and, and server managers and things like that. And all the investment that they had to take didn't go into building a better product. It went into IT infrastructure. And as such, quite a few of those companies failed purely because they couldn't execute on that. And we were looking at that and thinking like, but we know how to do that. So why don't we just start to take a few of those things that we've developed for ourselves, you know, to support this very significant set of teams internally that almost all look like small startups and small groups, take some of the ideas of how we develop technology for them and start using those to build to build services that could help uh, companies that have to re- that have to achieve internet scale just like Amazon does um, execute more let's say more smoothly that they didn't have to worry about how to buy storage that they didn't have to worry about where to get compute from or where to get their databases from but that you could get them at scale is there all the technologies therefore that you're keeping in a, um on top of, would you say that all of them are coming from within or are there a few that you no. need to keep abreast of externally that are not anything that you would be looking at normally? And how do you filter those new technologies? Like, I mean, I'm going to pick something random here, but like rockets, you know, like I know, you know, there's the whole conversation about drones making things more efficient for you guys, but there must have been some process of external validation and then testing that to then be included before it could have grown organically within Amazon. Well, if, if we look at AWS, and it's probably the easiest or, or probably a more visible one for, for most for most people is that um, even though we had developed these technologies for ourselves internally, we didn't take those technologies and just externalize them. We, we basically took the principles that we had learned from building those and applied them to building them again from scratch for the outside world. We didn't take any of the technologies sort of lift and shift over from Amazon into the external world because we realized a few things there that we had to do radically different or radically different, quite different. For example, we had to build security from the ground up into each and every one of the products that we would be releasing. Yeah? Um, now, security is, of course, important for Amazon.com as well. But if you are the single user of technology, within an organization, then you apply very different risk models to the software that you run there. Then, for example, to software that has to be used by many different customers in parallel, concurrently. And so, you know, we had to build in security as sort of the first principle for each and every one of the things that we were going to deliver. We had to have a very good control over what kind of resources were going to be used because we were going to charge customers for resources. Yeah, We had to develop a whole methodology around how to figure out what kind of resources were being consumed in this world. 
what kind of resources were being consumed. And so it's it's one of the things in in the AWS world that is hardest to consume technology from the outside is that often technologies have never been built for the scale that AWS needs to operate on or have not been built with the with security from the ground up in, in there. And, and as such, um, it is very hard for us to consume external technologies and just make them available for our customers. You know, we, we, we set a very high bar when it comes to security. There's a no compromise bar there. And the same is for, for scale and performance and reliability. You know, when you launch a new service at AWS, on day one, 100,000 customers or two or 300,000 customers are going to try it out. You better be ready for, for scale there. And, and as such, there is, um, there's a lot of lessons that we've learned over time you know, about how to apply those that often if you would have to just buy software from the outside and then launch it, we'd never be able to meet those meet the bar that we've set for our for our system. But so how do you keep yourself motivated every day to push boundaries? You know, one of the expressions in the valley is move fast and break things. If if you have those I mean obviously it makes sense for Amazon to have those, but more as as Werner the individual, how do you keep yourself motivated in, in sort of exploring those crazy ideas at the same time being conscious that you need to sort of uphold the values of Amazon? Well first of all you can't break things. I mean, you can, that's what you would think, but if if a million businesses are running on this platform, you better not be breaking things yeah. for them. Yeah, because yeah, please don't. Once, you, once you deliver things on the AWS platform, customers are going to build their businesses on it and going to be relying, going to rely for their business on this. You better deliver things with that is that are rock solid on what I would call sort of the five systems pillars. Yeah, so security number one, availability, uh, high availability, thing reliability. Things need to be able to run always. Predictable performance, yeah, high scale needs to be scaled to whatever things your customers want to do with you, and total control over cost. And so those five pillars need to sit under underneath everything. And so there is no there is no let's break things and let's see what happens kind of things because other companies, many, many other businesses are depending for their livelihood on AWS and that puts a very heavy burden on exactly how we deliver software. And so what you will often see is that we will we will deliver new services in a with a limited feature set, mostly because we, we want to make sure that the core principles, yeah, those five core pillars are just work solid. And those are more important than than having every possible feature in that particular service. For example, when we launched DynamoDB, our um, our key value store service or a no no SQL database, we already knew that customers wanted secondary indices. We had a whole list of things that we knew that customers would absolutely want with this one, but we 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 decided to launch with the minimum feature set first because we wanted to make sure that things like you know, predictable performance were really rock solid. And so, and then iterate from there. And I believe that modern development processes, you know, also allow, sort of drive that kind of approach, you know, delivering, launching big things at once as big blobs have 
high risk associated with, with, with them. You know, if you deliver a service with, let's say, 20 features versus a service with two features, the likelihood that something goes wrong when you deliver those 20 features at one time is much higher than the one with two features. And so having a, a, a regular cadence in delivering of new features allows you to actually build software that has much higher level of, of reliability, much better scalability, much better control over that. And so we, we do believe strongly in sort of this continuously continuous development process. You know, if changes are three lines of code instead of 30,000 lines of code, you have total control, you have very good insight and control over those changes, especially with respect, for example, to security. And as such, and also if you do this more frequently, the uh, more frequent the, the, the deliveries, uh, you're going to automate that process. Yeah, and so, and if you automate that process, you take human error out of the loop, and as such, you get a much higher reliable system with with much better control over security, performance, scale, cost, and things like like that. So I think, I'm, oh, wait, the question, original question, how do we keep myself motivated? Eh? <laughs> it's not that's not that hard, <laughs> you know. If you see the kind of things that our customers are doing with AWS, it's amazing. You know, there's so many things, first of all, that are being built that that are that have never been built before. You know, and so So maybe, maybe in that spirit, like what is the one thing you wish you were more of an expert on right now then? Oh, well probably that I was more of an expert on. Let's see. I, I probably I think I always have a pretty decent grasp on the state of technology and things like that, but if I look at where not necessarily young businesses and startups, but but if I look, for example, also at, at enterprises and larger or for some of our larger customers, I wish I had a bit better understanding of the psychology of change. Yeah. In often we, I mean, as young businesses, we often have you often have the 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 luxury of starting from scratch. Yeah. But as soon as you have already, if you are already on a path and you need to take a different direction and you are already bought into going into one particular way, how do you motivate your teams and how do you motivate people to actually turn around, to go do something else? And there's not too much that I, that I look at this within Amazon because I think we're pretty, pretty, we're pretty good at that. But many of my customers, especially in, in more enterprises ask us, okay, now now we have this whole new world of cloud. We have all of these services at our fingertips. Now we can move fast. We can become agile. But how do I go from this old organization where I've hired people to be operating in a strict hierarchical world where their bosses tell them what to do to a world that needs to move fast and where they're independent and sort of need to move do and, and actually become their own boss? Sort of, I wish I could help companies better there with sort of advice around change management, the psychologies of change, and things like that. Well, Werner, I'm, I'm happy to start a that's podcast uh, specifically on that with you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. That's, it, it's one of the harder things. I think it's also, you know, now that AWS has reached, I mean, we're now more than 10 years old. And so, well, especially when it comes to, to established businesses, one of the more questions I more and more get is how can we be more like Amazon? That it's it's a question that frequently 
uh, CIO or a CEO will we will ask us. Come and talk to us. How can we how can we move how how can we change our organization to be moving faster? Because for most organizations, for most enterprises today, they start to realize that their competition is not going to come from the other five players. Yeah, that they already knew and where they've competing with forever. Their competition is going to come from young companies. Yeah. Because suddenly those young comp- one one thing that set enterprises away apart uh, away from startups in the past was they had access to all these resources, and today that's no longer the case. You know, uh, IT is no longer a differentiator between enterprises and startups. Startups can have access to the same kind of infrastructure that enterprises have. And actually, quite a few startups know much better how to exploit those kind of infrastructures like cloud and like open source and than, uh, than that startups do. Indeed. And as such, you see, you see competition arising for many of these enterprises out of very different uh, areas. Now, probably financial services is, is one area where I think most banks and financial service institutions start to realize that competition is not going to come from the other banks. It's going to come from maybe smaller, newer banks or from financial services companies that do one thing really well, like um, international money transfer. Yeah. Or uh, is it uh, security around mobile payments? And so where it will be deaf by a thousand cuts if they don't watch out. And as such, yeah. they need to start behaving. They not need to start innovating and moving as fast as that these younger businesses do, otherwise they'll be out of business. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Actually, this is a, it's funny you mentioned the, the currency transfers. We have a company called TransferWise that does that. That's my shameless plug there. Yeah. And actually, they were on stage with us in the last uh, AWS Summit. Uh, also, Mondo, um, another you know, new bank from the UK, is, is another example. But for example, a company like Coins.ph, this is other side of the world in, in the Philippines. So many people in the Philippines don't have a bank account, yet many of their family members have moved to either Hong Kong or to Singapore to work as domestic helps there. So with, oh, all, with, they, they all transfer their money back to the Philippines. And so, but they all have to pay about 8% on that from the traditional uh, money transfer companies. So basically, half a day a week, these people are working for Western Union or, or yeah. another company like, like, like that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much so change. Coins, there's so much change that's going on right now that I, I guess, yeah. you, you know, you're seeing this at, sort of from within Amazon and, and obviously in the media. But what's the one thing that you used to strongly believe in that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about? <laughs> Um, well, one thing that I really strongly believed in is, is uh, before I joined Amazon, was, um, you know, the greatness of academia. Really, that sort of, they were holders of the um, of the, the true white flame. Yeah. Um, by now, I know, uh, after having spent uh, 10 years in, in one and, and 10 years in the other, I know that academic, uh, academics cut a lot of corners. Yeah? All these assumptions that they make to make their algorithms and their... their uh, their uh, systems work do not work in practice. Yeah, things like um, you know failures are not correlated, or systems will stop, will fail by stopping. Yeah, all those things are completely irrealistic assumptions in the real world. Yet academics continue to use them because it makes it easier for them to run their algorithms. It then makes it incredibly hard to adopt those algorithms in in practice. 
And so when I was in academia, I absolutely believed those were laudable ideas because at least you could get your papers out. By now, I know it makes those papers totally unusable in uh, in the real world. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, I guess in the subject of academia, there must have been at least, you know, maybe within while your years in academia and maybe even as up to now, what has been the book that's most influenced your thinking huh. more than others? <laughs> More than others, yeah. I don't know. You know, that's that's a hard thing. You know, I'll, I'll pick one, um, and I mention a few others. Yeah, I think uh, there's a book in the end of the '70s by John Gall. He he coined up uh, something called systematics. That's basically, uh, and the subtitle of the book is how systems uh, really work and how they fail. And remember, this is sort of before computers come into vogue. Yeah, it's really doing research into how do things work? You know, which which systems that you build, which are the ones that actually become really successful and which are they fail? And he finds a whole range of principles around that that I think are absolutely still applicable today. And one of them is that he says that systems, complex systems, that have been built as a complex system almost always fail. But that complex systems that have that have evolved out of simpler systems that start off as a simple system that worked in general and then evolve into complex systems, those systems really work. Well, those are things that are really applicable today. I think we've seen this. We've done all these massive IT projects that take three, four years and then deliver a product at the end that absolutely doesn't work. Yeah. And so I think some many of the principles around that kind of high-scale development, or high-scale system buildings, were really there. John Gall. Excellent. A um, few other books that really influenced me, Jim Gray's Transaction Processing book, absolutely really was important to me because it really dove into the nitty-gritty details of how to build um, database systems. Uh, Stephen Groth's uh, Strogatz's is non- Non-Linear Dynamic Systems and Chaos book absolutely impacted the way that I thought about how you do things at scale and that not everything needs to be not only uh, uh, organization-wise but also technology-wise, that you can build systems that are chaotic, that have no centralized control, but that actually have properties that you would really like to exploit. So there's a number of books that have influenced me. And um, at this moment, actually, I'm reading a book that I really, really, really enjoy. That is a book called uh, Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Uh, by Christian and, and Griffiths. It's a really fun book that, that I think is, is worthwhile reading for anybody. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure to pick one up on Amazon. Um, I guess the, the last question for you, I know that music is important in your life. You know, it's, it's been something, obviously, that, that you know, we've followed. And what's the biggest influence for you there? Biggest influence? You know, I, I, that's such a... Because the moment I pick one... I sort of do this this justice to all the other artists out there, yeah. But probably in my earlier in the early years, I loved the the hardcore blues musicians uh, like Muddy Waters, yeah, and and sort of really those that uh, traveled uh, that had had their history in in sort of the south and, and moved to Chicago and other places. But probably the musician I've seen most live performances of was B.B. King. He was such an amazing guitar player, such an, a generous person. 
that I, I don't know, I've, I must have seen him 30, 40 times uh, during my life. He's the, the, it, is, it is amazing, by the way, that he, he couldn't sing and play at the same time. And so he's, he's in essence, a, a rather limited musician, but his music is, touches, touches your soul when you listen to it. Well, thanks for sharing that with us and for sharing a lot of the story behind your life and, and the time in Amazon and sort of being a CTO. Thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll see you soon.